Section 10 of the Quintessence of Ibsenism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jack Daniel, San Francisco, California. www.voiceofjack.com. The Quintessence of Ibsenism by George Bernard Shaw. Section 10. Ghosts. In his next play, Ibsen returned to the charge with such an uncompromising and outspoken attack on marriage, as a useless sacrifice of human beings to an ideal, that his meaning was obscured by its very obviousness. Ghosts, as it is called, is the story of a woman who has faithfully acted as a model wife and mother, sacrificing herself at every point with selfless thoroughness. Her husband is a man with a huge capacity and appetite for sensuous enjoyment, society, prescribing ideal duties and not enjoyment for him, drives him to enjoy himself in underhand and illicit ways. When he marries his model wife, her devotion to duty only makes life harder for him, and he at last takes refuge in the caresses of an undutiful but pleasure-loving housemaid and leaves his wife to satisfy her conscience by managing his business affairs whilst he satisfies his cravings, as best he can, by reading novels, drinking, and flirting, as aforesaid, with the servants. At this point, even those who are most indignant with Nora Helmer for walking out of the doll's house must admit that Mrs. Alving would be justified in walking out of her house. But Ibsen is determined to show you what comes of the scrupulous line of conduct you were so angry with Nora for not pursuing. Mrs. Alving feels that her place is by her husband, for better or for worse, and by her child. Now, the ideal of wifely and womanly duty which demands this from her also demands that she should regard herself as an outraged wife and her husband as a scoundrel. The family ideal again requires that she should suffer in silence, and for her son's sake, Never shatter his faith in the purity of home life by letting him know the truth about his father. It is her duty to conceal that truth from the world and from him. In this, she only falters for one moment. Her marriage has not been a love match. She has, in pursuance of her duty as a daughter, contracted it for the sake of her family, although her heart inclined to a highly respectable clergyman, a professor of her own idealism, named Manders, in the humiliation of her first discovery of her husband's infidelity. She leaves the house and takes refuge with Manders. But he at once leads her back to the path of duty from which she does not again swerve. With the utmost devotion, she now carries out a tremendous scheme of lying and imposture. She so manages her husband's affairs and so shields his good name that everybody believes him to be a public-spirited citizen of the strictest conformity to current ideals of respectability and family life. She sits up nights listening to his lewd and silly conversation and even drinking with him to keep him from going into the streets and betraying what she considers his vices. She provides for the servant he has seduced and brings up his illegitimate daughter as a maid in her own household. And as a crowning sacrifice, she sends her son away to Paris to be educated there, knowing that if he stays at home, the shattering of his ideals must come sooner or later. Her work is crowned with success. She gains the esteem of her old love, the clergyman, 
who was never tired of holding up her household as a beautiful realization of the Christian ideal of marriage. Her own martyrdom is brought to an end at last by the death of her husband in the odor of a most sanctified reputation, leaving her free to recall her son from Paris and enjoy his society and his love and gratitude in the flower of his early manhood. But when he comes home, the facts refuse as obstinately as ever to correspond to her ideals. Oswald, the son, has inherited his father's love of enjoyment, and when, in dull, rainy weather, he returns from Paris to the solemn, strictly ordered house where virtue and duty have had their temple for so many years, his mother sees him first show the unmistakable signs of boredom with which she is so miserably familiar from of old, then sit after dinner killing time over the bottle, and finally, the climax of anguish, begin to flirt with the maid who, as his mother alone knows, is his own father's daughter. But there is this worldwide difference in her insight to the cases of the father and the son. She did not love the father. She loves the son with the intensity of a heart-starved woman who has nothing else left to love. Instead of recoiling from him with pious disgust and pharisaical consciousness of moral superiority, she sees at once that he has a right to be happy in his own way, and that she has no right to force him to be dutiful and wretched in hers. She sees, too, her injustice to the unfortunate father, and the iniquity of the monstrous fabric of lies and false appearances which she has wasted her life in manufacturing. She resolves that the son's life, at least, shall not be sacrificed to joyless and unnatural ideals. But she soon finds that the work of the ideals is not to be undone quite so easily. In driving the father to steal his pleasures in secrecy and squalor, they had brought upon him the diseases bred by such conditions. And her son now tells her that those diseases have left their mark on him, and that he carries poison in his pocket against the time foretold to him by a Parisian surgeon, when he shall be struck down with softening of the brain. In desperation, she turns to the task of rescuing him from this horrible apprehension by making his life happy. The house shall be made as bright as Paris for him. He shall have as much champagne as he wishes until he is no longer driven to that dangerous resource by the dullness of his life with her. If he loves the girl, he shall marry her if she were fifty times his half-sister. But the half-sister, on learning the state of his health, leaves the house for she, too, is her father's daughter, and is not going to sacrifice her life in devotion to an invalid. When the mother and son are left alone in their dreary home, with the rain still falling outside, all she can do for him is to promise that if his doom overtakes him before he can poison himself, she will make a final sacrifice of her natural feelings by performing that dreadful duty, the first of all her duties, that has any real basis. Then the weather clears up at last, and the sun, which the young man has so longed to see, appears. He asks her to give it to him to play with, and a glance at him shows her that the ideals have claimed their victim, and that the time has come for her to save him from a real horror by sending him from her out of the world, just as he saved him from an imaginary one years before by sending him out of Norway. This last scene of ghosts is so appallingly tragic 
that the emotions it excites prevent the meaning of the play from being seized and discussed, like that of a doll's house. In England, nobody, as far as I know, seems to have perceived that Ghost is to a doll's house what Mr. Walter Bizant intended his own sequel to that play to be. Footnote An astonishing production, which will be found in the English Illustrated Magazine for January, 1890. Mr. Bizant makes the moneylender, as a reformed man and a pattern of all the virtues, repeat his old tactics by holding a forged bill in terrorum over Nora's grown-up daughter, who is engaged to his son. The bill has been forged by her brother, who has inherited a tendency to this sort of offence from his mother. Helmer, having taken to drink after the departure of his wife and forfeited his social position, the moneylender tells the girl that if she persists in disgracing him by marrying his son, he will send her brother to jail. She evades the dilemma by drowning herself. An exquisite absurdity is given to this jeu d'esprit by the moral, which is that if Nora had never run away from her husband, her daughter would never have drowned herself, and also by the writer's naive unconsciousness of the fact that he has represented the moneylender as doing over again what he did in the play, with the difference that, having become eminently respectable, he has also become a remorseless scoundrel. Ibsen shows him as a good-natured fellow at bottom. End footnote. Mr. Bizant attempted to show what might come of Nora's repudiation of that idealism of which he is one of the most popular professors. But the effect made on Mr. Bizant by a doll's house was very faint compared to that produced on the English critics by the first performance of Ghosts in this country. In the earlier part of this essay, I have shown that since Mrs. Alving's early conceptions of duty are as valid to ordinary critics as to Pastor Manders, who must appear to them as an admirable man, endowed with Helmer's good sense without Helmer's selfishness, a pretty general disapprovement of the moral of the play was inevitable. Fortunately, the newspaper press went to such bedlamite lengths on this occasion that Mr. William Archer, the well-known dramatic critic and translator of Ibsen, was able to put the whole body of hostile criticism out of court by simply quoting its excesses in an article entitled Ghosts and Gibberings, which appeared in the Pall Mall Gazette of the 8th of April, 1891. Mr. Archer's extracts, which he offers as a nucleus for a dictionary of abuse modeled upon the Wagner Schimpf lexicon, are worth reprinting here as samples of contemporary idealist criticism of the drama. Descriptions of the Play Ibsen's positively abominable play entitled Ghosts this disgusting representation, reprobation due to such as aim at infecting the modern theatre with poison after desperately inoculating themselves and others, an open drain, a loathsome sore unbandaged, a dirty act done publicly, a lazar house with all its doors and windows open, candid foulness, Kotzebue turned bestial and cynical, offensive cynicism. Ibsen's melancholy and malodorous world, absolutely loathsome and fetid, gross, almost putrid and decorum, literary carrion, crapulous stuff, novel and perilous nuisance, Daily Telegraph, leading article. This mass of vulgarity, egotism, coarseness, and absurdity, Daily Telegraph criticism. 
Unutterably offensive. Prosecution under Lord Campbell's act. Abominable piece. Scandalous. Standard. Naked loathsomeness. Most dismal and repulsive production. Daily News. Revoltingly suggestive and blasphemous. Characters either contradictory in themselves, uninteresting or abhorrent. Daily Chronicle. A repulsive and degrading work. Queen. Morbid, unhealthy, unwholesome and disgusting story. A piece to bring this stage into disrepute and dishonor with every right-thinking man and woman. Lloyd's. Merely dull dirt long drawn out. Hawk. Morbid horrors of the hideous tale. Ponderous dullness of the didactic talk. If any repetition of this outrage be attempted, the authorities will doubtless wake from their lethargy. Sporting and dramatic news. Just a wicked nightmare. The gentlewoman. Lugubrious diagnosis of sordid impropriety. Characters are prigs, pedants, and profligates. Morbid caricatures. Maunderings of the Nukshatten Norwegians. It is no more of a play than an average gaiety burlesque. W. Sanlager in Black and White. Most loathsome of all Ibsen's plays. Garbage and offal. Truth. Ibsen's putrid play called Ghosts. So loathsome an enterprise. Academy. As foul and filthy a concoction as has ever been allowed to disgrace the boards of an English theatre. Dull and disgusting. Nastiness and malodorousness laid on thickly as with a trowel. Era. Noisome corruption. Stage. Descriptions of Ibsen. An egotist and a bungler. Daily Telegraph. A crazy fanatic. A crazy, cranky being. Not only consistently dirty, but deplorably dull. Truth. The Norwegian pessimist in petto. Sick. W. Sanlager in black and white. Ugly, nasty, discordant, and downright dull. A gloomy sort of ghoul, bent on groping for horrors by night, and blinking like a stupid old owl when the warm sunlight of the best of life dances into his wrinkled eyes. Gentlewoman. A teacher of the aestheticism of the Locke Hospital. Saturday Review. Descriptions of Ibsen's admirers. Lovers of prurience and dabblers in impropriety who are eager to gratify their illicit tastes under the pretense of art. Evening Standard. Ninety-seven percent of the people who go to see ghosts are nasty-minded people who find the discussion of nasty subjects to their taste in exact proportion to their nastiness. Sporting and Dramatic News. The sexless, the unwomanly woman, the unsexed females, the whole army of unprepossessing cranks in petticoats, educated and muck-ferreting dogs, effeminate men and male women. They, all of them, men and women alike, know that they are doing not only a nasty, but an illegal thing. The Lord Chamberlain left them alone to wallow in ghosts. Outside a silly clique, there's not the slightest interest in the Scandinavian humbug or all his works. A wave of human folly. Truth. End of section 10. Recording by Jack Daniel. 
San Francisco, California, www.voiceofjack.com.